Howdy, friends. Welcome to the XT Podcast. I'm your host, Tony Dosat. If this is your first time listening, thank you for checking it out. And if you are a returning listener for more, hey, what's up? I've missed you. <laughs> As always, if you're digging what I'm digging, I would truly appreciate a subscribe and a review wherever you happen to be tuning in. This week, I'm speaking with Kristen Patterson, and we dive into accessibility, a topic in design that is too often overlooked and yet is paramount to truly being an empathetic designer and, as we find out, vital for business. So without further ado, let's jump into the interview. Kristen Patterson. Hi, Tony. Hey, girl. <laughs> First, thank you so much for coming. Um, it's a real pleasure having you here. Kristen is a colleague of mine. Um, before we get into the topic of discussion, who are you? What are you doing here? How did you get here? <laughs> well, first, thanks for having me, Tony. I'm really excited to be here. Um, I am a strategist here at Bottle Rocket, and it's just one of those fortuitous things where um, maybe I did something right in a past life and I'm alive right now where strategy and user experience is a, a viable and, and uh, endlessly possible vocation. I originally double majored in psychology and studio art at a liberal arts school and then ended up through a winding path uh, graduating from a math and science school um, with a technical background. So uh, here we are. So when we talk about accessibility, you've got some an acronym after your name on LinkedIn. What does that acronym mean? So that is a CPACC. That's a Certified Professional of Accessibility Core Competencies. I am uh, very lowly on the totem pole of the, the niche body of knowledge, but um, that is just denoting that I have been tested over um, five bodies of accessibility criteria, including the one, you know, we in the biz are most familiar with WCAG, the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, and then, you know, various treatments that uh, the legal and political systems of 14 different countries have with regards to digital accessibility. Wow. That's a lot. <laughs> That's a lot. Took me a minute. <laughs> Not just one country. So what is accessibility? How, how, how would you define it? I would define um, digital accessibility as just a way of making our digital experiences more sensitive to the human condition. And, and that is we're not at our best all the time. We're not 100% fully capable physically, emotionally, mentally all the time. So what considerations can we make in our line of work and in our communication with our colleagues, neighbors, and loved ones to, uh, to really uh, make sure that we're paying attention to kind of everyone's needs? Where did this passion come from for accessibility in sort of your role here? Well, um, I actually discovered that uh, WCAG, the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, uh -huh. which have been in existence since 1999, were getting their first update in over a decade last Christmas. And you could watch this unfold online. It was fascinating. It's this global body of um, professionals and experts volunteering their time to help craft these guidelines. And the, the update was going to include considerations for cognitive impairment, which I think is wild because in a technical field, we quantify things. We, we want specific bits and bytes, specific levels of contrast ratios. 
Um, but how do you quantify consideration for cognitive impairment? So um, that was where my interest was piqued. And then the more I've gotten to know it, um, the more uh, compelling but disparate motivations I've found. For example, the, the, the legal treatment stateside has been like the Wild West. So it's kind of morbidly fascinating to watch that unfold. And um, it's, it's also really inspiring to see what other professionals are doing with these new accessibility considerations and the, the new technology word we're uh, learning to experiment with and master every day. What is considered a cognitive impairment? So cognitive impairments can range from anything as basic as you're in the airport, in the crowd, rushing to your gate. You're distracted, you're stressed, your cognitive load is taxed at that point, unique to that situation. So at that point, you're acutely cognitively impaired versus clear head, clear mind, clear heart, looking at your ticket, calmly making your way to your gate. That's never the case when we travel. Yeah. Some more severe cases of uh, cognitive impairment can be defined clinically with regards to Alzheimer's or dementia, ADHD, dyslexia, um, something called dyscalculia, which is where people struggle with symbols and numbers. Um, so the, it's just where our cognitive load is not optimal. Are they considered disabilities? So this is um, where it gets a little interesting with regards to the treatment of the word and, and yeah. how we parse it. So uh, it depends on whom you're talking to. If we're going to call it a disability with regards to political and financial consideration, that varies every year. So as an example, autism is also a cognitive impairment. Mm-hmm. And the way that is clinically defined actually gets changed, has been, has been changing year over year. So some years you will qualify as on the spectrum and you will receive... Uh, financial or governmental considerations for support in that arena. When the definition changes, that may exclude your specific condition with uh, uh, autism. That's How do they, they do that? How do they change the spectrum like that? Uh, it's As just they changing learn, the, they change it? Or? Yeah, they're just changing the definition. Wow. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I have family that has autism. Mm. And so things like accessibility really, I mean, mean so much mm-hmm. to me. And Something that you've said in the past is that we all know someone who has some sort of cognitive impairment. Okay, so let's step back a little bit. WCAG is, say it again. They're called the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines. Web Content Accessibility Guidelines. (laughs) There's nothing dry about this. (laughs) And ADA, what is ADA? Uh, The ADA is the Americans with Disabilities Act. That is a, a federal law. That is unique from WCAG, but there is still a uh, one-directional relationship between the two. While WCAG is um, a body of, let's say, guidelines that are recommendations for folks in our field to follow, um, crafted by a global body of experts, um, these are guidelines for how to make your technical experience uh, accessible. The ADA, however, is a U.S. federal law with considerations for making places of public domain accessible to everyone. Um, Title III specifically deals with places of public accommodation and with the inception of the internet and the technical age that now includes digital spaces, but it's not specifically cited in the federal law. So what judges and um, litigious bodies have done is just defer to a CAG because it's the best we've got right now. Um, it's actually the 
a specific standard of WCAG. So to satisfy WCAG, there are A, AA, and AAA standards. That's bronze, silver, and gold. The creators of WCAG have asked that most people, for general accessibility, satisfy AA standards, like middle of the road. And so the uh, federal courts, state courts, um, and other legal bodies have deferred to AA standards for WCAG to satisfy the legal considerations in the spirit of ADA. So as designers, we talk about empathy all the time. And a lot of times I find that designers treat accessibility as like a dirty word. And it's this scary thing that they don't really want to think about. Mm -hmm. However, they will stand on a mountain with a flag that says empathy all day long. Mm -hmm. So how should designers start thinking about accessibility as part of empathy. Mm-hmm. So um, I have noticed as well that uh, typically in the in the design space, accessibility is um, kind of the wet blanket uh, of, of our call to action and our craft. But I think that stems from um, more anchoring the concept in brutalist design, where it has to be so heavily, the design needs to be so heavily diluted that it lacks any spirit or character. And therefore, surely it must be accessible. Um, but I think that's a false correlation, just you know, born out of the brutalist design trend. And um, I, I think the shift in perspective that folks in our field can take uh, to really add more substance to their uh, capacity for empathy is to better hone the personas for whom they're designing. And when we talk about personas, what do you mean? So when you're trying to envision this thing I'm going to create as a experienced designer, a user experience professional, uh, an art director, um, I want it to bring surprise, delight, and optimal utility to my end user. Who is that end user? That end user is going to be one of a series of personas that you can create to make sure that you are, in fact, measurably satisfying their end needs and wants. So this persona could be if we are building um, a ride-sharing app, we are going to envision, ideally, the spectrum of people who will most likely use this and get value from it. So that could be a 14-year-old child who may now also include considerations for autism and ADD, which are cognitive impairments. And this can include um, an adult who is 70 who may have previously had a stroke and therefore suffers from poor motor function. So we need to uh, maybe dial down the animations or make our touch targets a little bigger um, on our digital experience. But um, the personas are just a way of being a little more tactical with regards to how you're approaching your design goals. You're designing for actual human beings. Yes, that's correct. Brilliant. So what what kind of numbers are we talking about with people with impairments? Earlier this summer, Forrester published an article citing that uh, 1 million people globally suffer from impairments. People with disabilities constitute the largest minority in the world. Often overlooked, mm-hmm. especially in a lot of the things that are designed today. And what's even fascinating about that is the American Institute of Research has also quantified the fact that um, Americans with disabilities holds $490 billion in disposable income annually. And that money being left on the table is on par with other uh, minority communities that we, we do openly now as a, as, a, as a community and a society acknowledge need unique consideration or special consideration 
um, for inclusion. And the African-American community controls $501 billion in disposable income. And the Hispanic community, uh, American Hispanics, control $582 billion in disposable income. So there's kind of two ways what I'm hearing right now is in order to get accessibility sort of injected into the culture of an organization or a design team or even an individual designer, in my head, there's a couple of different ways, and correct me if I'm wrong. One is this empathy route, and one is this financial sort of, there are implications here where we're missing out on some dollars Mm -hmm. because we're a business. Mm -hmm. Is there another, like, what are some legal ramifications that we can see coming if there are any. So with regards to uh, WCAG's kind of unofficial relationship to the, the American with Disabilities Act, um, there there is the threat of lawsuit if you do not comply or, or take into consideration these measures to make sure that the good or service you're providing is available uh, to all. And uh, Title III ADA lawsuits, if taken all the way to the federal court and found in favor of the prosecutor, um, this, this could... Uh, range in the tens of millions as far as fines and legal fees because the ADA is a civil rights lawsuit, so it doesn't necessarily allow for uh, recovery of damages. But when found guilty, the guilty party does have to pay uh, fees and then um, fines. And I, I have a feeling that a lot of companies, a lot like HIPAA violations, they just think, oh, it's not going to happen to me. It's fine. Like, I'm not going to be audited. But have there been some suits and cases as of late that could have people sweating? There have been so many suits and cases that um, during October of last year, so sorry, I'm jumping ahead of myself, um, the the trend of increasing Title III ADA lawsuits started to reach such a growing degree that the Department of Justice, back in 2010, released an official statement with their intent to write our own WCAG. We will have the American WCAG, uh, and it will be law. But uh, December 26th of last year, the DOJ released a follow-up f- uh, formal statement saying, never mind. So with that, the lawsuits are still continuing to grow year over year, uh, such that October of... I'm sorry, I misspoke. The DOJ rescinded their intent in December of 2017. So in October of last year, 103 congressional members from both sides of the aisle wrote a joint letter to the DOJ, pleading them to reconsider, just because the lawsuits are so off the charts. What do you think the best way, who needs to, who needs to start baking this into the culture as, it, as being something that is important? So I think um, with the motivators being number one, altruism, or number two, uh, fear of legal ramifications, or number three, tapping into previously overlooked markets with regards to the disposable and discretionary income of people with disabilities. Um, I, I think this is a chance for everybody to start taking it into consideration. I ask that everybody call on someone in their life who um, maybe suffers from uh, Alzheimer's or dementia or ADD, dyslexia, poor eyesight is something that these guidelines take into consideration, um, which both of us being glasses wearers, we yeah. can <laughs> we can we can get on board with that. But uh, just just call to mind um, someone in your life whom you love and care for uh, with uh, disability covered by WCAG, which you know as we discussed, a billion people nationally. That's going to be someone in our lives, and do it for them. 
and, and have a discussion on their behalf with someone in your office. When you say that, it reminds me of not a bottle rocket, obviously, because I think everyone here is, is on board with it, but in instances where I've worked with designers before, like we mentioned, they think it's this dirty word, they, they don't really have any consideration for it. I just want this idea of that number you said, a million people, all in one room, and then I want the designer to say, I'm not thinking of you. Mm. You know? Wow. Yeah. And I think that, I think that's what really sort of put me over the edge, because I would be lying if I said I didn't think of it mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't necessarily talked about a lot, mm-hmm. and it's getting more, it's, it's getting more talked about recently. <laughs> but I started thinking about those people. And you can't design for everyone, but you should try as hard as you can mm-hmm. to at least meet these guidelines. Mm-hmm. And as dry as this topic can be, it's so vital. Mm-hmm. So I do um, agree, and, th- and that does call to mind. I think one thing we are um, blessed and afflicted with as designers is that we do have uh, an innate scent for, uh, sense for uh, beauty and perfection in our craft and we can't achieve that when designing for accessibility. You can't make something that's 100% accessible. And this has come on high from the World Wide Web Consortium who created WCAG, um, and you can find it everywhere. An example of that is if you're designing for someone with low vision, um, which were the population that WCAG was originally crafted for back in 1999, uh, you're going to want a stark contrast, white background with black font. Let's start there. Perfect. Check that box. Except now we are also considering people with cognitive impairments, which include those with dyslexia. So if you do have a white background and black font on a digital screen, the way dyslexia processes the this kind of input, that's like turning background noise when someone's trying to concentrate up to 150%. Oh, wow. It's very jarring. So when you are accommodating one disabled population, you may be hampering another. So this is where we just have an opportunity to get more specific with our personas. So for compliance, um, my most reliable go-to and the farthest our technology can take us today is uh, screen readers. So if you're on a mobile device, turn on every, – every phone comes with one now. Um, uh, turn on your screen reader and try and swipe through maybe one of your favorite apps to get an experience for what it's like to be uh, a user with very poor vision. Uh, an interesting stat is that the iPhone 6 is actually the iPhone model that – uh, most of its users do necessitate the font enlargement feature. That's a stat that Apple has released, yeah. Um, so with screen readers on your mobile device, maybe if you're on your computer, try and tab through your favorite site. Just use the tab button and see if you get a big bright outline around the focus area and see if you can complete one of the tasks you normally go through. Unfortunately, technology has only taken us so far to where the more automatic tools only catch about 25 to 35% of errors. And that's a stat from the User Experience Professional Organization International Body. Um, but such tools are still helpful if you're trying to get going. So there's Accessibility Scanner on Android, Xcode on iOS and um, iPhones, and then uh, Google Lighthouse as an extension of Chrome for desktop. Awesome. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is wild to me. And I think what will help inform designers are doing the very things you just mentioned because when you try it it's hard it's like really difficult to do and if that's your everyday life 
how do you imagine that feels, you know? And, <laughs> and so for designers, do you think the impetus is on them or do you think the impetus is on the leadership of the organization? Like, is it chicken and egg? So I do think with regards to any business environment, um, for the sake of honoring the fact that while we love it and this is our, our dream job, this is still a means for us to put money on the table and keep the lights on. Same thing with leadership. They need to ensure not only that they can keep the lights on, but they can keep the lights on for their employees whom they've worked hard to retain. Um, so with that, nodding to dollars and cents, um, this will be good for business. And then having that come down from leadership as this is imperative to our business processes, uh, I think is most effective with regards to seeing institutional change uh, quickly and broadly. But I do think there's opportunity and kind of a call to action for designers to account for these characteristics in our personas uh, and in our craft. Most of this conversation has sort of been circling around mobile devices or screens, things like that. Are there implications outside of those experiences that that we can start thinking about as we start designing for things like voice or VR or AR and things like that? Or is it just so the Wild West that it's unknown? So, um, yeah, another reason I've kind of enjoyed, well, the, the Sisyphus challenge of mastering all the knowledge that this pertains to is just that it's still like the Wild West. So, um, so while we do have uh, mobile guidelines, majority of the legislation that's out and legal precedent that has been set pertains to websites, but that hasn't stopped lawsuits from coming for mobile apps. They just don't make it all the way to federal court. Most most companies settle outside of court. So um, a lot of the guidelines for these and and kind of the broad-reaching call to actions only pertain to websites right now, which we are technologically advancing far beyond. You said Sisyphus earlier. Mm -hmm. What is that? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, nerding out. Uh, that So back in Greek and Roman mythology, um, one man who slighted the gods was doomed to push a boulder up a hill for eternity. Oh, Sisyphus, and, of course. Yeah, and he would never reach the top of the hill. <laughs> okay, so now that I got us into Sisyphus, I like to end on a question that really has nothing to do with anything. Okay. What object that you own or possess, non-digital, has had the most impact on your life or means the most to you and why? Oh, I've got one right now, actually. Um, so it, is it, it's not digital, but it's electronic. It's like, That's fine. Okay. Uh, so for Christmas, my, I have a twin sister who lives in Colorado and a younger brother who lives in Washington um, and then parents who who live far away as well. Um, my sister got all of us these lamps. They are rectangular lamps with beautiful um, stained glass patterns on the side, but the material in between the, the stained glass frames is white. When you tap the top with your uh, four fingers, it will light up, and then it will light up the other lamps in your network to let them know you're thinking of them. Oh, that's cool. And you can assign yourself or other people colors on your lamps. So when my brother taps it and it lights up fuchsia, I know he's saying hi. Um, oh, I like that. So it's just a really fun thing we do when we're like running around town between errands and work and the gym and just tap it thinking about you and carry on with your day. And, and it means so much more than, or not more, but different than a text that just says, hey, 
Yeah, yeah. It's it's a quick. There's it's non-committal with regards to. I'm not asking you to respond or take time out to read this. Just let, no. I'm thinking about you. From Sisyphus to lamps. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Kristen. Thank you, Tony. It's where been can a people, pleasure. Where can people reach you? Where can they? find you online oh well um, I am on LinkedIn and I actually do prefer that to curate uh, more uh, industry related and professional articles and contacts and then I'm also on Twitter but selfishly that's kind of my own personal RSS aggregator you know star and retweet things that I want to circle back to later Um, on Twitter it's Kristen Loop and on LinkedIn it's Kristen Patterson K-R-I-S-T-I-N and I'll have it in the show notes thanks so much thank you Tony Let's wrap this week. By the way, a quick edit. When I was illustrating my metaphor of every person standing in a room with a designer, I said a million people when actually, as Kristen said, it's a billion people with cognitive impairments. So woof. Imagine that. Again, thank you to my guest, Kristen Patterson, and thank you, you beautiful people listening. I can't wait to have you here next week, but until then, friends... Stay curious.